When I asked Dahlia Scheindlin what it felt like to be Israeli right now, she said a couple of things. First, it's hard to sleep. You know, there's so much adrenaline, there's so much action also at night, and then everybody's worked up and tense, and so it's, uh, I, I sleep, but, you know, not a lot. <laughs> Dahlia is a political scientist and a columnist at Haaretz in Tel Aviv. She's been going out into the massive protests that have been roiling the country for 12 weeks now. Thousands of people have flooded the streets, waving Israeli flags, demanding Benjamin Netanyahu's governing coalition abandon its attempt to reform the Israeli judiciary. An estimated 300,000 citizens marching Saturday, many alleging the plan is a power grab that could make Israel an autocracy more like Turkey or Russia. We all have to fight for our rights because of the plans of Benjamin Netanyahu that want to turn this nation into a dictatorship. This week marked a kind of crescendo for these protesters as unions ordered much of the country to go on a general strike. That shuttered businesses all around Israel. Well, yeah, I mean, today was definitely you know, the most intensive because the, you know, because so much, such a major swath of the economy was completely on strike. We didn't have planes taking off today. You know, within a minute of the head of our major labor union, Hisadrut, announcing that the Hisadrut was joining the general strike, there are no more flights taking off. So for Dahlia, being Israeli now means being tired, being inconvenienced, but it also means a strange kind of solidarity. All kinds of people have turned out to make their opinions known, Soldiers, doctors, young people, old people, hundreds of thousands of them. Like Dahlia, they're motivated by the belief that the quote-unquote reforms their representatives are pushing will make Israel dangerously undemocratic. We're in uncharted territory a little bit because we've never been through anything quite like this. And it feels a little bit scary as a citizen because, you know, my life is here, my uh, my work is here. My finances are here. You know, the country I live in is very much on the verge of becoming something completely other, at least for us Jewish Israelis, whereas, you know, Palestinians have lived under an undemocratic regime for a long time. But it does feel like, you know, my life as I know it could change dramatically. So it's worrying. And Dahlia is still worried, even though late Monday, these protests led the Israeli government to blink. Israel, I... On live television, Benjamin Netanyahu announced he was delaying this judicial reform for now. You know, Netanyahu saying we're going to give a chance to uh, dialogue and see if we can come to an agreement. And that, of course, is clever because it basically says, you know, to the protesters, this is a time when you can claim that you've had some victory. So is this a victory? I would not exactly say it's a victory. It's simply a, a kind of gesture in favor of the protesters and a desperate attempt to get the country back, you know, mobilized again. I keep wondering what these people are going to think when the demonstrations are over and everybody goes home and this solidarity drains away. Today on the show, why Israel shut itself down and whether this move will really make a difference in the long term. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. 
Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. There are four big judicial reforms at play here. One would allow the Knesset, Israel's parliament, to override Supreme Court decisions with a simple majority vote. Another would give the ruling coalition the ability to appoint Supreme Court judges. All of these reforms put strict limits on the judiciary at a time when the prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, is under indictment. But Dahlia says these reforms have been brewing for more than a decade. And for Netanyahu's party, the Likud, and his far-right governing coalition, getting them done has become their first priority. The Likud has been involved in this and enabling it and in some ways nurturing it for at least a decade. And the other parties to the right of Likud have been openly advocating this kind of political takeover of the judiciary and suppression of judicial review and judicial independence for years. They've been planning it. They have been thinking about these in their uh, political circles and in their policy circles and in their right-wing think tanks. We have a document that we call the Coalition Agreement that outlines the basic principles of the coalition. It has to be published by law uh, two days before the government is sworn in. And in that document, when it was released, it read like a loyalty oath that all the parties in the government would prioritize these judicial reforms, and we can talk about the term, and that they would go along with whatever the justice minister proposed and they would have to support it. And they were basically sworn to making this their number one priority and the plans were all in place. In fact, they generally share the perspective that the court, in their terms, has become some sort of a dictatorship of elites. And Dahlia says, because of the way the Israeli government works, without a constitution, the term judicial reform is actually a bit of a misnomer. Judicial reform, I still think, is the easiest way to capture what's happening, but it certainly is a form of regime change. It's also really important to point out something much more basic, and that is that we don't actually have structural and institutional checks and balances on the executive other than the independent judiciary. The government controls a majority of the legislature. There isn't a real separation of powers we don't have any sort of regional election system. We're not a federal system. We're not part of any other international, you know, meta state uh, bodies or international courts. And we don't have a formal written constitution. So there's really no constraints on the executive. And there are no real constraints on legislation as well. Israel, for most of its history until 1992, was legislating with absolutely no boundaries other than the independent judiciary, which very rarely would exercise judicial review of legislation, but was more likely to exercise judicial review of executive action when it violated certain principles, for example, equality or freedom of speech, even though they weren't written in Israeli law. And so, you know, I think that's what made Israelis really scared is the kind of penny dropped that we have no other real protections. And the court has been responsible, which is the accusation of the right wing, for reading some of the basic expectations that any citizen would have in a democracy into Israel's political culture 
even if they weren't written into law. That is a deep point of contention. I think that it's not a healthy situation for a democracy. I agree with the right wing on that. But the court has been forced into that situation. So you've you've laid out basically how as soon as Netanyahu became prime minister again, everyone had been kind of sworn to do this judicial, quote unquote, reform. Can you just tell me how the protest movement started? Like, do you remember, was it immediate as well? Like, were they just as prepared for this moment as Netanyahu and his coalition were? I don't know that they had a particular battle plan for this because so many Israelis seem to be caught by surprise. I'm not sure why anybody was surprised because I've been tracking this issue for many years, but many Israelis were. Now, I can tell you that the moment the government was established and it was actually sworn in the very last days of 2022, within one week, uh, the justice minister from Likud, I should add, published you know the full plan of judicial reform. And right away that week, there were there was a demonstration. It was a fairly big demonstration but the interesting thing about that demonstration was that it split into two. You know, one half of it, let's just say it was roughly half, were protesting the attacks on the judiciary. And that was a very mainstream group of people who, you know, maybe voted for centrist parties or some left-wing parties, but maybe also some right-wing parties. And I remember talking to a lot of people who said, you know, I voted for Likud, I'm a right-winger my whole life, but I don't like this attack on the judiciary. And then it split. there was a split, and the, the remainder of the demonstrators were really saying, if you care about democracy, you can't support occupation. Huh. And this all brings us back to you know, the problem with occupation over Palestinians. But that demonstration was big in its, in its own right, you know, let's say 20,000 people. But by the next week is when we really saw mass protests, much bigger. And by that time, the leaders of the various groups that were protesting had made a clear decision that they were not going to split demonstrations and that the best way to mobilize the most people was to completely unify all forces and to make this into a very patriotic Israeli demonstration in its tone and symbolism. And about judicial reform, because that was the thing everyone could agree on. Yes, but also adopting the Israeli flag as the symbol is very much, you know, a Jewish national narrative. They have completely appropriated all of the of the national symbolism, which does create a dis, you know, a, a rift in Israeli society on some level. Maybe rift is too strong a word, but there has been lots of observation that many of the of Israel's Palestinian citizens don't feel themselves part of this. They generally support an independent judiciary because it has occasionally made advances for their position in Israeli society and you know advanced some of the values that have benefited them too. So they certainly aren't for the reforms or the regime change or whatever we decide to call it. And some have been present and speaking and joining, but. You're, you certainly don't see those kinds of numbers uh, or the major presence of the Palestinian citizens of Israel because they said, you know, and I've, I, there's even been some people quoted saying things like, this looks like an internal Jewish debate, you know, uh, especially because they're very much more connected to the Palestinians under occupation. And they know that the court really stops short of supporting things that we might consider basic human and civil rights when it comes to Palestinians in occupied territories. Can you tell me how the protest pressure came to a head this weekend? when the defense minister was fired? Like, just tell that story. Okay. I mean, I think that in general, this was even before the defense minister announced his intention, that he had communicated that he was going to call that he was going to make some sort of a speech calling for a pause in the legislation. Netanyahu basically pulled the, the defense minister into his office, you know, for a sort of, I don't know if it was a dressing down or a negotiation, but he got him, he headed it off. He managed to get the defense minister not to do it. And then Netanyahu flew off to London for a visit during which he was trolled and hassled by Israelis and protesters, you know, outside Downing Street when he was meeting with the prime minister there. Stay, oh God, yes! 
was on Saturday night while the prime minister was still away that Gallant, the defense minister, Yoav Gallant, did make his speech and said, you know, the warnings about the weaknesses and damage this is causing to Israel's military preparedness are too severe. We cannot count on our military being sufficiently prepared. But I think that, you know, that Netanyahu felt like he was disobeying his orders because they had come to some sort of an agreement, that he was sidelining him by doing it while Netanyahu was abroad, and that he was doing it without Netanyahu's control or even knowledge that he was going to do it. And that infuriated Netanyahu. Netanyahu, of course, likes to have complete control over everything that goes on in his coalition and probably in the country in general. And so Netanyahu... You know, it took him about 24 hours to make this decision to announce that he was going to fire him as defense minister. And the message here is that, you know, if you give me information I don't want to hear, you're out. The message is if you go against my policies, you're out. Even though I just said he was furious about how it happened, I think the real problem was that he wanted to prove that he could pass these reforms. And with 64 seats out of 120, he should have been able to pass them. And there were already cracks in the armor. Interestingly, one of the other, you know, very seniorly Likud figures, Yuli Edelstein, who had been chair of the Knesset, which is a position equivalent to Speaker of the House for many years, he had absented himself. I don't mean abstain. He had simply not shown up for one of the key first stage votes of one of the pieces of legislation. Hmm. So within the Likud, you're never going to hear people saying we're against the reform. The best they can do is say the way it's being done is too alienating. We need to call for dialogue. So we already knew that there were some cracks inside Likud. Gallant became the first to openly and publicly state in a very public way, I think we should stop this process. But Netanyahu knew that it could very easily drag with it other Likud figures who had already been privately telling him this has gone awry. It didn't happen the way we wanted it to happen. And after Netanyahu announced that he would be firing the the, uh, the defense minister, there was, uh, let's say speculation and hints being dropped from those figures that they would support the effort to pause the legislation. Because him firing the defense minister immediately triggered such an extreme response from the protesters who within literally half an hour began calling for mass demonstrations and then within an hour had completely blocked the main traffic highway. And then within two hours, there were tens of thousands of people and then hundreds of thousands of people out in the streets. It's just so interesting to me that Netanyahu seemed to think that firing the defense minister might work out for him in some way. <laughs> well, we're all trying to play like you know the psych- psychoanalyst for Netanyahu from for years now because there are you know many things he's done that we many people think were over the top or you know inexplicable, and somehow it always seems to work out for him. This time, it's starting to seem like he's really miscalculated. The reaction was so severe he could not. I don't think he could have anticipated that reaction. When we come back, how just 24 hours seems to have changed the fate of Netanyahu's judicial reforms. For now, anyway. On Monday morning, the crisis in Israel seemed to deepen. A general strike was called. And it was interesting to me because, you know, from the beginning, Israel's business community has been opposed to these judicial reforms. So it seemed to be this moment where, in addition to protesters in the street, we had people who were sort of 
pillars of the community in a different way saying, no, we won't accept what's happening. Was that surprising to you? It was surprising to me. I did expect mass demonstrations. And I have to say that because I've been tracking this issue for a very long time, I wasn't surprised that there were lots of people on the street expressing their opposition to the reform. I was surprised at how big, the breadth, the endurance. But I don't think I expected so many different professional, social, and civic communities over the course of these last 12 weeks to become so active and mobilized, each rather independently. You know, so the fact that we have had a big presence for the medical community in the demonstrations the entire time, almost from the beginning, is something I did not anticipate. And I think that I have to admit, the mea culpa, I sort of missed the business angle until the business community began very quickly saying this is going to completely destroy Israel's finances. Uh, and the Bank of Israel began giving its very doomsday projections and, you know, credit rating agencies began with their warnings. And Israel's economy is very dependent on its global trade. I mean, Israel's you know, economy is driven largely by its high-tech sector. But again, those are all communities that expressed opposition. What really was a game changer when, was when different communities began taking action that disrupted the normal functioning of society. And the demonstrators, too, closing roads, blocking traffic on weekdays is an enormous cost to the people who need to go to work to physically be there to get their jobs done. Finally, on Monday night, Benjamin Netanyahu released a statement. In it, he announced he was putting the judicial reforms on hold for now. He compared himself to King Solomon, trying and failing to split the baby. I think what he was trying to do, he's trying to do what he usually does, which is put it in sort of grand historic terms and make himself seem like a man of gravitas who really understands when there are big tectonic shifts at play and that he is the person who can step in and guide the country, navigate these troubled waters. He portrayed it as this difficulty that has befallen the country. That has nothing to do with him, but he's the great man that can fix it. Exactly. And as, as if it just kind of fell out of the sky and hit Israel like a meteor, as if it wasn't his government, his doing, and his long-term doing as well. And then he said, you know, in this kind of situation, it is my responsibility to give a chance to rapprochement and dialogue. And I have decided to postpone the legislation. Following breaking news overseas at this hour, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has announced he will delay his push to overhaul the country's court system until next month. The proposed changes have sparked massive protests. He nearly the lost his coalition today. You know, one of his uh, ministers, the, the minister of national security, which we used to call internal security, threatened to simply not support the entire endeavor of postponing this and topple the government. And in the end, I mean, we don't know if he actually threatened, but he did not support postponing the legislation. And in the end, they negotiated about it all day, it seems, until that minister, which is Itamar Ben-Gavir, decided that he would let the ref the pause go on. Uh, if he decides to leave the government, he will continue supporting it from the outside. But so far, he hasn't done that. And Itamar Ben-Gavir released a statement saying this reform will pass. Like, this is in no way a backing down. Exactly, because that, you know, that has been, again, that party really campaigned on exactly this program. So they feel like it is their signature, it is their raison d'etre. And, you know, again, the question of whether Netanyahu is not really committed to it, but just wants them on his side is almost irrelevant. He has thrown his entire political and moral weight behind this. And he is not going to back down from it at an ideological level. If he has any ideological qualms, he is not about to show them to the public. And I don't think it matters at this point. He is behind it. And I think he will try to continue it as long as he needs to, to keep his government going. I mean, you said that Netanyahu 
almost lost his coalition moving forward. And many people have observed that basically he was stuck between a rock and a hard place. Like if he jammed these reforms through, he would enrage people in the streets. And if he took a pause, he would sort of lose momentum for what he was trying to do. But even though he's sort of pasted things back together for now, what does that say to you about his strength moving forward and and how long he might be in his current position? It's certainly a legitimate analysis to say that he's weaker now in some ways because he's trapped. He's trapped into this coalition. He doesn't have any other coalition partners who will sit under his leadership in government. And this is what the coalition demands. And he has created a monster within the Likud that demands it as well. You know, having said that, Netanyahu, we know, is kind of a magician who pulls tricks out of the hat. He has nine lives to mix all of the possible metaphors about a survivor in politics. And it's true that he seems very much like he has his hands tied and he has no, cho- has no choice but to move forward with this. But again, I wouldn't portray him as a victim because he has created the momentum in favor of this kind of you know, suppression of judicial independence for years. Whether or not he was personally committed to it hardly matters. The other thing is that there are also calls for the opposition parties to join his coalition in order to, you know, like throw a lifeline to the country's democracy in the sense that nobody wants them to sacrifice their principles and go into a government led by a person who's under indictment, you know, and will continue leading the country in this direction. But there is also a sense that this is a real SOS and that the longer Netanyahu is in power in a government with the far right supremacist, nationalist, ultra-Orthodox and religious parties, this legislation will not go away and it will pass on some level. And therefore, the centrist parties should go into a government with Netanyahu just to preclude him you know, having to move ahead with that kind of legislation. After all of the events of the past week or so, do you feel like democracy is safe in Israel? I don't think democracy has ever been fully realized in Israel. I think democracy has been missing major foundations from the beginning of statehood. Those foundations, the missing foundations have deepened. I would say the damage done to Israeli democracy over the last decade under Netanyahu's rule, really since 2009, built on the vulnerabilities that were there to begin with. And so I think the problem is not just that there's a threat to Israeli democracy, but that Israeli democracy was always weak, partial, and compromised. I mean, the very fact that we don't have equality guaranteed in constitutional level law, equality of all citizens, really it should be a a, a tip-off that something is amiss with Israeli democracy in a very long-term sense. Dahlia, I'm so grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, great. Dahlia Scheinlin is a fellow at Century International, a progressive think tank based in Tel Aviv, Israel. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We're getting a ton of support right now from Laura Spencer. We're led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. Say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. Catch you tomorrow.